Good morning, Harvest. For those of you who are watching online as well, glad to have you guys here. Glad to be able to do this. Um, we've talked about this a lot, that uh, this season has uh, showed us that um, how good it is to be together, I think, and uh, to recognize that uh, this is probably in my lifetime the most inconvenient it has been to gather together. Um, but it's also shown me that there are, reminded me that there are brothers and sisters around the world right now who it's not just inconvenient, they're actually not allowed to gather to do this. So although it's been inconvenient to have smaller sizes, be able to smaller group sizes to get together or having to wear a mask inside or, or doing multiple services like this to get as many people as we can, it may be inconvenient, but that's all it is. And it's so good though. It's so good to get together like this. It's so good to, to worship like this. So, so my, my heart is filled with joy for us being able to do this. And it's filled with prayer for those who can't do this. And then we remember them uh, around the world who are, who are actually, they, they can't even meet like this. So by God's grace, we can. We're super excited to gather together like this this morning. So why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and go to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. If you get your Bibles on, you go to 2 Peter. And as you're turning there, you know, when this whole COVID thing started, I don't know if you were like me, I made some pretty big plans. Um, I wasn't naive for how long it was going to last. I kind of figured this isn't just going to be a two-week thing. It's probably going to be a longer thing. But I was pretty naive, pretty optimistic about what I could accomplish. I mean, social media was filled with people making all these these amazing plans they were going to do. And, and, and I don't know why, but for some reason, sourdough bread was a big deal. I'm not sure how sourdough bread... I've heard it, if the apocalypse comes, just make sure you got sourdough bread, apparently. I'm not sure what it does, but the one thing I did see, though, and I tried, that, that there were a lot of people who were, who were uh, making gardens. So I got in this whole vegetable gardening kick, and, 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 and I jumped in on that, and I told my kids, I think I've told you guys, I told them, guys, dad, dad's not a gardener, I'm a farmer. Because, I mean, if this thing goes like, like walking dead, this is going to be our only source of food. So, so this is important, because dad's farming now, and, and quickly realized that... Um, if we were living as homesteaders in the 1800s, the Ballantine family would not have made it through the first winter. I am not a farmer. Uh, <laughs> the crop has not been good. Uh, I've successfully grown enough lettuce to uh, make about a half a plate of lettuce. Not, not like a, you know, you get the dinner plate of lettuce and you get the side, it's the uh, of salad, it's the side salad. I got about enough for a side, did not do well. Did not do well. And, and, I mean, that, that's just gardening, but I kind of think about what the Christian life can be like. We make all sorts of big plans. We know we've been saved by the grace of God and, and we've been chosen and set apart and, and we can see what God's called us to in that. And so we have these big plans for how we're going to live our lives for Christ. And yet sometimes, sometimes doesn't it feel like all you have to offer the Lord is a half a plate of wilted kale lettuce? It can be exhausting. It can, it can be frustrating. And it can be this constant cycle for many believers, this cycle of discouragement. So, so every Sunday you come and, and you either get some, some deep encouragement or maybe a good kick in the pants from God's word. But, but, the, but even as you're coming to the place, maybe at the end of a Sunday service where you know you're being called to, to give it all for Christ, to be all in for Christ, you have this, this nagging feeling where you know, but it's so much bigger than I can ever accomplish. And so this whole deal of sanctification, being, being made more like Christ, that's what sanctification is, becoming more like Jesus. And, and it's what we should be doing as Christ followers. But i got to tell you, the, my path of sanctification, there are times when it can be so frustratingly slow. Sometimes it feels like I've stalled completely. I mean, maybe you've been there before. Anybody else, you've been in that place. And, and, and there are seasons in life where you're growing and things are amazing and you're changing. You're walking so closely with Jesus. And, and, and then there are seasons where you don't 
really know if you're growing. There's seasons where you're wondering, why am I still struggling with this sin? I hope, I, I'd, I'd hope that I'd be more godly by now. I'd hope that I'd be more mature by now. And so the Christian life can feel like we're, we're up and down all the time. And, and I heard someone describe it just this week as the Christian life feels like you're just a yo-yo. It's up and down. And yeah, when you use a yo-yo, you can do some tricks. But even all the tricks you do, it's still just going up and down. So, so as Christians, we, we can do Bible studies. We can go on a retreat. We can, we can be part of an amazing Sunday morning. And yet it still feels like up and down, up and down. We can be up on Sunday and hear a, hear a sermon that stirs our heart, be a part of great worship, and then Monday comes along and it's kind of, eh. And then by Tuesday, we've, we've sort of lost the holy hangover, right? By Wednesday, we're, we're in the midst of trying to figure life out and facing temptation and struggle and, and all the things in our, our messed up, broken world. And by Saturday, we don't even know what we believe. What can happen is that in order to find some solid ground, in order to find an, an anchor in our life, we can get caught in some traps of, of common Christian behavior. We, we try to grab a hold of this behavior and say, if I just do this, it'll provide an anchor for my soul. And we miss the most solid, deepest anchor for our soul. We miss grace. Grace. It's been defined as unmerited favor. Be favored means that you, you have every opportunity for success, that you are favored, you have everything you need, that God, by his grace, would look at you and say, you're my favorite. And, and not just that you're favored by God, but it's unmerited favor. It's, it's unearnable. It's free. It, it's a gift given to not only those of us who don't deserve the gift, we actually deserve the opposite of that, but grace steps in. And God says, I'm going to save you. All the things you've done, all the sin, all the guilt, all, all the stuff. All the stuff you hope that no one ever finds out about. You're trying to keep it hidden. I hope no one ever knows about this. God steps in and says, listen, I'm going to take care of all of that. I'll erase it all. You don't have to pay for any of it because Jesus paid for it all. And by grace, Jesus steps into your place. And if, if you know Christ, if you sat under good gospel teaching or preaching, you know this truth. You know about this anchor of grace. And yet how often do we go through our lives without... And we fall into these, these common Christian behaviors, these, these traps that are so anti-grace. In fact, here's one that we can fall into. Behavior control. I'm just going to control my sinful behavior. And I'm, I'm going to limit. I'm going I'm to become so obsessed with sin. A, little, a lot like what the Pharisees were like. You see, what the, the Pharisees did in Jesus' time, they looked at the law of God. They, they saw what God laid out saying, this is what it looks like to follow me. And they, instead of looking at the law and going, oh, man, we need a savior. They looked at it and thought, you know what? I, I think if we break some of these things down, I think if we, if we get some clear definitions, definitions on this, we can rock this out. We can do this. They saw the law and they said, okay, love your neighbor. Okay, well, who's exactly my neighbor? Because I think I can do that. And then, then Jesus says, well, your neighbor are the Samaritans, the people you hate. I'm like, all right, we didn't see that one coming. That's not what we thought. Okay, how about murder? Let's go to murder then, Jesus. Because that one I think we can do. We can cover that one. And Jesus says, hey, it's, it's not about the outward action of murder. It's about the, the anger and the hatred that's in your heart. And if you have that in your heart, you've already committed murder. And I can imagine the, the Pharisees trying to control everything would be like, you know what? Murder, we're going to murder this guy. 
And they're trying to break these things down so, so they could keep the law more easily. And, and listen, there's a godly impulse in that. There's something good about a desire to obey God. So, so then in our lives, how do we tell the difference between, between me having a godly desire to live a holy life or me being a Pharisee trying to manipulate my behavior? One way if you've, you would know if you've given in to being a Pharisee is if, if you see your, your, your sense of justification before God, how you stand before God, how God views you when you stand before him, if that goes up and down with how well you're obeying, you've given in to pharisaical behavior control. If you feel awesome, like, like God sees me as good, I, I feel good, I can stand before God because I'm doing great, or then all of a sudden you're in sin, you're, you're going in a way you know you should be going, then you go, oh, God must not love me in this. And listen, in the Garden of Eden, we saw this played out right away. The very first time sin enters God's creation, when Adam and Eve decide that God is not a good God, he does not care for them, and they want to go their own way, so they rebel against God, say, forget you, we're doing things our own way, and they sin against God. Right away, the first consequence of that sin was shame. They felt shame. They hid from God. And, and we do the same thing, don't we? We hide. We, we, try to, we try to either hide who we really are by performance, right? Because we, we've learned from a very young age that, that we perform for acceptance. If I'm good enough, if, if I'm talented enough, if I'm diligent enough, if I'm beautiful enough, if I'm together enough, if I'm correct enough, I'll be loved and accepted and blessed and happy. And if I'm not, I'll be rejected. I'll receive a, a lousy life from God. It's, it's what I would call Santa Claus theology, right? You better watch out. You better not shout. You better not cry. I'm telling you why, why, why. Because Santa's watching all the time. He's got a list. He's checking it twice. He'll find out if you're not or nice. And, and he's coming to town. And so we have this, this fear of, I better do everything right. And listen, listen, if, if I feel confident that God loves me when I'm doing well and not so sure that he loves me when I'm doing badly, that's striving for God's approval. And we miss the deep soul anchor of grace. And when we do that, it leads to the second way of life that we can live, trying to, trying to grab a hold of things and, 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 and not just trying to control my behavior. We start to fall into the trap of religious pretending. Right? We hide sin. And we put on masks. We, we only share what we're... we're enough, I'll, I'll share this little sin, but I won't tell you the, the fullness of my heart because I, I don't want to expose fully who I am. I want to protect my, my reputation as much as I can and... Or, or you roll into church knowing that you need grace and you come into a church and your first thought is, I'm probably the worst person here. And eventually you start to hide. And it's not just that we're afraid that God will reject us. We're actually afraid that everyone will eject us. Reject us. If, if these people really knew the real me, and they'd walk away fast. And so what do we do? We do the religious pretending. We fake it till we make it. The third trap, if those things wear you out so much, the third trap we fall into is just outright rebellion. Maybe it's not that you fully reject Christ, but there are, there are things in your life where you just kind of shift some things around. You start to ask the question that Satan asked in the garden. Does the Bible really say that? Or maybe it's further than that for you. Trying to fake it becomes so exhausting. You, you, you get to that place where you say, forget it, I'm done. You're so fatigued. You, and finally you say, why bother? And, and what do we do? We give in to rebellion. 
how many of you might be there right now in some area of your life? An area that used to, that you would hear the spirit press in on this, but now you just don't listen anymore. My hope would be that even now, even right now, today, that God would be pressing in on your heart, that, that you would be hearing again, feeling his call on your heart, that you're, you're so tired of striving, so, so tired of hiding, so, so tired of faking it, so tired of running. Because listen, here in 2 Peter, here's where Peter steps in with this amazing letter. That God brings us this truth through Peter. And, and he's going to remind us, hey, listen, you don't have to live your life just struggling in futility. You don't need to pretend. You don't need to hide. You don't need to save yourself. In fact, what he tells us is this. He says, you have a solid anchor for your soul. You have everything you need for life and godliness. Now, as Peter writes this letter, this letter, 2 Peter, he's near the end of his life. Scholars would say he's likely in prison awaiting to be, to be executed because he was a Christ follower. And this may be the last thing he has to say to this group of Christians. This group of people who, they were scattered throughout Asia Minor, they're under persecution, that's why they're scattered. And Peter's heard that they're they're fearful, they're struggling. Many are saying, I'm giving up, I'm not doing this anymore. And so Peter's writing to them and he's saying, I want to remind you of something you know. You know this theologically, but you're not putting this truth into practice. You don't have your souls anchored in this. And the anchor that Peter's pointing them to, pointing us to this morning, is the anchor of grace. And listen, if, if you've been in church for a long time and you get, yeah, grace, grace is how I'm saved. But listen, grace just doesn't get you in. It's the same grace that grows you once you're in. It's the same grace that keeps you while you're in. Ultimately, it's the same grace that will have you stand before God on that last day covered in Christ's righteousness. And Peter knows, he knows, I may not have an opportunity to write another letter after this. This is it. He's saying, guys, if you forget everything else, grab a hold of this. It's why in the sermon series, as we're going through what, what historians call the five solas, Latin for only, that as the early church was, was growing, they said, we need to, we need to come up with, with, we don't lose everything else, just don't lose these, these onlys, these anchors for our souls. You can lose all your stuff. You can lose all your relationships. You can lose all the way we do church. We've got ways we've got a flavor of how we do church. Listen, none of that, we don't have to hold on to that tightly, but we hold on tightly to are these, these solas. I will not let go of these. Because they're not just helpful theological terms. They're anchors for our souls. So we've talked about scripture alone. We've talked about faith alone. This morning, sola gratia, grace alone. If you have your Bibles open to 1 Peter, look at verse 1. It starts off, it says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, I know when we read through Scripture, we're reading, especially the letters, we can blow past the first bit because that's just an introduction. But, but let's not just run past this because there's so many truths that are packed into just his introduction. Where Peter calls himself, I'm a servant and an apostle. Now, if you've grown up in church, you know a little bit about Peter, right? So, so you have an idea of what would be on his About Me page on his website when you think about who Peter is. And Peter, he's the one who abandoned Christ in the time of Christ's greatest need as he's being arrested, tried, and crucified. He's the one who denied even knowing him, scared of a teenage girl a third time he denied him. I used to be pretty hard on Peter about this one until, I mean, I got three daughters and two of them are now teenagers. I kind of get why he was scared of teenage girls. But anyway... 
This is the Peter. He went back to fishing after Christ had died because he didn't believe that Jesus would raise from the dead, even though Jesus told him over and over again that that's what was going to happen. He's like, I'm out of here, and, and I, I, I don't know. If, if I'm opening up this letter, I'd be saying, yeah, that's who I am. And you'd think Peter would start this letter and you'd, you'd hear him heaped in shame, and yet here he is so confidently saying, I'm Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, anchored in grace. I mean, I love that combo. He's an apostle and a servant. There's this grace-driven confidence and humility in how Peter sees himself. He says, I'm an apostle. Today, if you bust out that title, I'm an apostle, it's usually because you want to set yourself apart. I'm not like normal people. I'm an apostle. Kind of a big deal. I have an authority. But Peter says, I'm an apostle and a servant. In fact, look at the second part of the greeting. Keep reading in verse 1. Now he says to who he's writing to, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. amazing truth of this grace, the, the power of the gospel is that it levels the playing field for all of us. Peter, not defined as a failure. Why? Why? Because by grace, he's defined by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He's not setting himself up as this all-star apostle. Why? Why? He was chosen by Christ. He, he saw Christ after he had risen from the grave. He performed miracles, but that doesn't puff him up. Why? Because his, his identity isn't defined by his apostleship. His sin doesn't define him. His root identity is this. I'm defined by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, he says. And now he's writing to a group of Christians just like us, Christians who are, who are growing weak in their faith, and he says, you have an equal standing. It's because in Christ, if you're a Christ follower, you're defined by the righteousness of Christ this morning. But God, say this. If you're striving this morning, if you're struggling this morning, just breathe. All of us here, if you're in Christ, you're defined by the righteousness of Christ. You could be shooting the lights out right now and just knocking out of the park for Jesus. You're still a servant. You could be failing like a wretch, and yet you're still, listen, you're a beautiful son and daughter of the Creator. Why? Because you're not defined by you. You're, you're defined by something that was done for you. You're defined by something that was done for you, by your Savior, something that can never be taken away from you. And I love that. Look at verse 2. He says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This is Peter saying, this is what I hope this letter does for you. It's, it's my hope for us this morning even that, that grace and peace will be multiplied to all of us. Because you know Christ, because you're anchored in grace. When he goes on, look at verse 3. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He's granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful, sinful desire. He says this, he goes, listen, you have everything you need for life and godliness. And he says this, you are partakers of the divine nature. Now remember, he's not writing to a bunch of Christians who are knocking out of the park. He's writing to struggling and doubting and wrestling and scared Christians. And he says, hey, hey, you're partakers of the divine nature. 
because this is yours today. You have this now. This is not a future thing. Not, hey, if you guys do better, then you'll have this. He goes, no, it's yours today. So here's our challenge for us today. Out of God's word this morning, here's, here's the first of three quick points. First is this. To hold on to this anchor of grace alone requires God's power. To hold the anchor of grace requires God's power. But what does Peter say here? He goes, it requires God's power, and it's a power that's been given to you. I mean, think about how mind-blowing this verse is. It almost seems too good to be true, right? But don't, don't push it away. Don't just read it, but read it and believe it. It is so scandalously good to, to see this. That, that, I mean, it's so out of this world that you read it and you go, I don't know if I can fully believe that. That, that you and I in Christ have a divine power given to us for everything we need for life and for godliness. And you can read that and you can think, I don't know if that's for me. But, but Peter's writing to a group of people just like us. He's writing to people struggling. He's saying this, God's given you the power for your new life in Christ. Now think about the struggle we normally go through. And I think a big part of it is that we have an enemy in this world too. Satan's called the tempter and the accuser where he'll tempt us to say, forget God. Hey, hey, go after this sin instead. This will give you the joy you're looking for. This will give you the hope you're looking for. And he tempts us away to sin. And then as soon as we grab a hold of the sin, what's he do? He becomes the accuser of the brethren, it says. He goes, I can't believe you, you chose that. I can't believe you call yourself a Christ follower and you're still struggling with that sin. My prayer is this, that you would hear the voice of God, his grace over the voice of the enemy this morning, where he's saying, I've given you power. Not condemnation, but grace. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, if, if he gives you the grace to make you believe, he'll give you the grace to live a holy life afterwards. What's he saying? If, if God provides the grace to save you, to, to, to throw the party for you when you're the prodigal son, to adopt you into the family, if he can give you the grace to make you believe, listen, he also has the grace to help you grow and to live this new life in Christ. Apostle Paul says it this way in Philippians 1.6. He says, I'm sure of this. He goes, I'm sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. What does that mean? It means this. It means that, that your life of, of sanctification, of growing more like Christ, it's not just a yo-yo up and down, up and down, up and down. It's a yo-yo in the hands of somebody going up an escalator. Think of it that way. Yeah, there's up and downs in the Christian life, but we're, we're growing more and more as God, as God works in our hearts and our lives to grow us more and more like Christ. And listen, that's a certainty that he's at work doing. It's slow, but it's certain. And, and the grace that gets you in is the same grace that moves you forward. Because God's number one goal in your life right now is to make you more and more like Jesus. And so he's constantly at work doing that lovingly, kindly, tenderly, patiently molding and shaping and changing and teaching and, and showing and revealing our hearts. How is he doing this? How by his power is God accomplishing this in our lives? Look at verse 3 again. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. He's doing this by growing us in, in the knowledge of Jesus. He's saying the more you know Jesus, the more you grow to look like Jesus. 
fact, I'd say it this way. If you want to look more like Jesus, focus less on looking more like Jesus and focus more on being with Jesus. Peter said, if you want to grow like Christ, grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, I love it, he goes, there's nothing that compares to being with Jesus, to knowing him. Whether I know him in suffering or I know him in, in plenty, there's nothing that compares to knowing him. I just listened to a sermon by John Piper this week where he said this. He was, he was actually giving a talk to, to employees at Google, and he said this. He said, if you could show me a life that brings me more joy than following after Jesus, he said, I'd stop being a Christ follower right away. He said, but you won't find it. A life that gives me the joy and the purpose than following Christ. Listen, there's nothing greater than knowing Jesus. Your highest highs cannot count as much. Your lowest lows don't stand in the way of it. I mean, these verses are so good. Because they say, listen, God's not just saying, be like my son. He is saying that. He's saying, be like my son. And then he says, and I'll give you everything you need to be like my son. It's all yours, anchored in grace. Look at verse 5, he goes on. He says, for this very reason, because you're anchored in grace, he says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, make every effort. Now, if you're like me, you're like, man, I wish the sermon ended before you got to those verses because I like all that stuff about grace, about just resting in grace. Now you're talking about effort. It sounds like work. God, God wants us to be like his son. He empowers us to be like his son. But, but then I read through that list of, of what it looks like to be like his son. And I don't know about you, but I look at that and go, man, there's so many places where I'm not like Jesus. And Peter says, great. I love your honesty. Now make every effort. To, to lay hold of the anchor of grace, it requires God's power. Here's our second point. It also requires effort. To hold the anchor of grace requires effort. To know Jesus, where that power comes from, requires effort. Now you might be thinking, if it's grace, how can it be effort? Well, our, our salvation is by grace alone. Scripture's clear. Romans 3.24 says we were justified, made right before God by grace as a gift. Romans 5.15 says we have the free gift of the grace of God in Jesus. Romans 11 verse 5 says that we've been chosen by grace, not by works. So Peter's not saying add works to it now, strive harder for this. He's saying, listen, your grace is so firmly established. Now make every effort to live out of that grace. He's saying, listen, it's been given to you as this gift. Why would you settle for a secondary way of life? You've been declared righteous. Why wouldn't you live righteously? He goes, if this is true about you, if you can be anchored in this, he goes, why would you live this discouraged dichotomy of a life? John Piper says, grace is not simple leniency when we've sinned. Grace is the enabling gift of God not to sin. Grace is power, not just pardon. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, God's able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So the good news is more than just us being set free from the penalty of sin. It's, it's our moving in the freedom of, 
away from sin's power. It's our ultimate freedom eventually from sin's presence. So, so God's saving grace, it's this deep anchor for our soul. But then when you're amazed by that grace, you, you lean into that grace alone. It's this deep ongoing anchor for your soul. We recognize that no sin is small that crucified Christ. I mean, sin matters. But grace has power over sin. Not just in giving forgiveness, but also in transforming us, in changing us. In fact, I love the amazing order of how Peter lays it out. He's not saying, hey, you're beloved if you do these things. He doesn't say you're a partaker of God's divine power if you work. He says, no, you're beloved. You're already accepted. You're already a partaker. So work. Look at verse 5 again. For this very reason, since you're anchored by grace, he goes, if that's the truth, make every effort. And guess what? As you do it, God's going to work in you and with you. So as you make every effort, it's, it's by God's power. Because you look at that list that Peter gives, I mean, it can seem overwhelming. Maybe even in the season of COVID, right? Maybe you had other plans that weren't just making sourdough, but you had plans like, you know what? Because because we're we're kind of, everything's changed a bit. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to be in prayer more. I'm going to pray with my spouse every day. I'm going to lead my family in devotions. I'm, I'm going to memorize some scripture. I'm, I'm going to read these great these great books. And, and now we're coming into September, and maybe you're like, wow, what, what happened to those months? And I got busy. I got distracted. I've stopped making every effort. And Peter, in this moment, he says to us this morning, no, 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 don't, don't shrink back. Christ is returning. The Holy Spirit is still changing you. Make every effort. Make every effort to supplement your faith. Make every effort to live this out. How, how? He says, make it with virtue, he says here. With virtue, to, to live a life of virtue, it means not that you're just trying to get like the C plus on the on the holiness mark. Like you're, you're like, no, I, I want to live a life that's worth imitating. I want to go all after this with the Lord. So let me ask you this: Are you making every effort in virtue? I pray that Spirit would convict us even now of of areas in our life that are not being full of virtue, where we stop making effort. He goes on, he says, add to that knowledge. Now, this isn't just head knowledge. It's not just theological knowledge. It's a knowledge of God that, to make every effort to grow in knowing him, to know about him. So there is some digging into the word. and this, There's some living it out. And listen, Sunday alone won't do this. I don't care who's preaching or who's leading worship. Sundays won't be enough for us to grow in this knowledge of who God is. So let me ask you this. Are you making every effort? on, he says, self-control and steadfastness. Why is that? I mean, the the race is hard. The race is long. It's tough. And the prize goes to the one who endures to the end, Scripture says. And and listen, some of you may be in a tough season right now with the Lord. But I'm telling you, as you lean in to say, I'm I'm standing firm. I I am going to jump into the Word. I am going to spend time in prayer. That's not legalism. That's making every effort. That's widening your stance because things are coming at you. You're like, this is not going to knock me off of the path of I'm walking, pursuing Christ. He goes on, he says, add godliness. 
Now God's already promised us to give us the power to, to have a life and a life of godliness, but now he tells us make every effort towards this godliness, this, this living a life. Here, here's what godliness is. I want to live my life to please God. I mean, we can put so much energy. We can make every effort to please other people, can we not? But are we making every effort to please the Lord? Just add to that brotherly affection, add to brotherly affection, love, this, this love and kindness towards each other. And we, we love people not because all people are lovely, because they're not, but we make every effort make every effort, even when somebody isn't lovable, is to make that effort to say, I'm not going to do it just because I feel love. I'm going to act lovingly. Why? Because it's the greatest sign Jesus gives us that we get grace, that we understand who he is, that we've been changed by the love and grace of God, is that we love other people, so we make every effort. And maybe right now, maybe even right now this morning, in this field here in Bracebridge, or in your living room at home, you would say, Lord, where are there areas in my life where I'm not making every effort? Is it virtue? Is it knowledge? Is it self-control? Is it steadfastness? Is it godliness? Is it brotherly affection? Is it love? You'd say, God, God, I, I want to be anchored by the same grace that saved me. And out of that, I'm going to make every effort. verse 9. It says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. I love that. He's saying, he's saying listen, listen, the way you live this out, confirm it. You, you are chosen by God. Confirm that by how you live. He says, for if you practice these qualities, verse 10, you will never fall. Lovely. He doesn't say you'll never sin. He says, you're, you're just never getting to that point. If, you, if you're pursuing after grace, if your life is anchored by grace and the way you live it out, you're not going to get to a place where people look into your life and say, man, I don't know if you were ever chosen by God. Verse 11 says, for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an inheritance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Living out of that anchor, holding this anchor of grace requires God's power, requires our effort. Here's our last point this morning. To hold the anchor of grace requires much grace. Paul's saying, if you don't live this out, it's evidence that you don't get grace. You've forgotten who you are in Christ. And when you forget who you are in Christ, you stumble around like a blind person. Why? Because we place everything else closer to our face, saying, this is my home. And we place relationships. We place, we place sin. We place things we're going after, our stuff, whatever that is. And it's right here, and we can't see. And we, it says we stumble around like we're nearsighted. Instead, it says, by grace, remember who you are. You can pull that away, and you can see Christ again. We don't do that list to earn forgiveness of sins. We do them because we have forgiveness of sins. And we remember that. And as we remember that, as we're amazed by that, our eyes are open and we're drawn again to this new life in Christ. And Peter's saying, you need to be reminded of this regularly. Why? Why? Because we forget it regularly. 
We forget all the time. For, forget that our sins are forgiven. And when, when we forget that our sins are forgiven, we, we think there's some sort of piety and just wallowing in guilt away from God, just staying away from Him. Listen, it's not piety. It's insanity. It's blasphemy. When you remember the grace of God shown in Christ, giving his life on the cross for us in our place, it grows a desire for obedience. It grows a desire for a closeness with him. It grows in us a making every effort. If you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, man, I don't want to make every effort. You've forgotten grace. You've forgotten that your sins were forgiven. Be reminded of who you are in Christ. Be reminded again of the cross, the price that was paid. Maybe there's somebody here this morning and you don't know Christ. The great news is this. He, he gives you grace to enter into that relationship, not based on what you do, not based on how smart you are, not based on you've made good decisions up to this point in your life. No, he gives you the grace to know him as a gift into relationship with him to experience this freedom I would say don't leave here this morning without responding to that grace if you are here this morning and you're in Christ listen you you, you know you have this entrance into the eternal kingdom be, be reminded that when you when you step into this kingdom I mean think about the last days when you stand before God and and it's not standing before him in judgment now but you stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ and knowing that future grace changes who you are today, that you rejoice in that. Make every effort to live that out. Listen, to live out this anchor of grace alone, where you would say, God, you, you saved me, you delivered me, you redeemed me, you rescued me. Everything now changes because of that. I treat people differently now. Forgiveness flows more freely. I can overlook an offense. I can bear somebody else's burdens because I want to live out this grace. To have this anchor of grace, we become radically generous people. Why? Because I don't need to cling to my stuff anymore for acceptance or meaning or purpose. I can be more generous as I live out grace. Understanding this amazing grace changes how we worship. You begin to celebrate that grace so that, that our church should be marked with joy and celebration. Life might feel like a yo-yo, that it's it's going up and down, but listen, God's the one at work in that. And he's stacked the odds in your favor. Because he's paid everything that, that's required for your failure through his son, and he's he's calling you into who you really are in him. So let me say this, loved ones, grow in grace. Grab a hold of this anchor of grace that holds on to you. Open your eyes up to who you really are, and let's make every effort to live accordingly. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. We stumble around like a blind person. I pray this morning you would open our eyes to the amazingness of your grace, to the truth of your grace, the anchor of grace that gives us the power we need for life and godliness. And to know that you want to make us more and more like your son. Thank you for this anchor. Thank you for this cornerstone. Holy Spirit, I pray even right now as we end with worship, that you give us the, the power to repent, the power to lean into grace for your glory, for your name. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Would you stand with us as we uh, end off with some worship?